Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology nutrition professor of about 15 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens, powerlifter, Highland Games athlete, future heavyweight champion, boxer of the world. <laughs> I run Strength Guild, uh, USSF, and a bunch of other things. So, hey, <sighs> my GP Price. I'm a powerlifter out of Kansas City, Missouri, out of uh, Impact Elite Gym in Kansas City. Right on. Now we can't leave that heavyweight thing just dangling there, Phil. You gotta, <laughs> you gotta tell the listeners what's going on. Yeah, basically, so I go in for my hip replacement consult on Monday, and for about two weeks, so I went from deadlifting 650 for sets and reps to the next week I couldn't pick up 185, Um, so that's when Mm -hmm. I knew, okay, it's time, uh, because about three and a half years ago, they told me to just push my hip as far as I can until I can't take it anymore, well, that is the definition of I can't take it anymore for me, so, um, and I've just been in, you know, tons of pain, can't sleep things like that um so for about two weeks i've been struggling on what the hell am i going to do training wise i'm going in there and trying to do the same crap and of course that doesn't work um so i'm sitting there thinking it was like well i've always wanted to learn how to box so um i actually train a an ex-boxer in powerlifting now so i, I dropped him a line and said hey i want to i want to learn the sport will you teach me and like anything that i do it's like when i took up powerlifting i wasn't a powerlifter until i stepped on the platform so I told them if I'm going to take up boxing and learn it, I want to get in the ring and fight. So there you um, go. we're putting together a year plan to uh, get me ready to step in the ring. And I, I put it out there to a couple people. I was like, who wants to take me on? I would reached out to a bunch of other powerlifters or ex-powerlifters. And uh, <clears throat> Jason Pegg said he was, he was game. He thinks it'd be a lot of fun. So, um, you know, in the time being, it looks like we're both going to train for a year and then uh, step in the ring and see who comes out on top. Good grappler, if I remember right. Well, I know. That's why I picked boxing. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. You don't want him ripping an arm off. No, and I got that bad hip, so I don't need to be kicked in it or anything. So, yeah, so I don't know. It'll be fun. I already changed my training up. Of course, I'm still going to do a lot of strength training. My goal is to try not to get under 250 while I'm doing this, but I can already tell you that's going to be hard because I'm, you know, Basically, I'm doing a lot of strength endurance work now. So I'm doing 15 to 20 minutes of just what I can to hold on to strength or gain strength. And then you know, what I'm lacking is I guarantee you I couldn't go in a ring right now and throw punches for three minutes straight. I'd be gassed. Yeah. So yeah. i got to work on that. Um, and we're just doing simple stuff. Like on squat day, I'm going in and I'm setting a timer and I'm just squatting for a set amount of time nonstop. And then I rest for a minute or two and do it again. Um, I'm sore, man. I am <laughs> In sore places I didn't know I had. <laughs> but uh and jumping rope and crap like that, you know, kettlebell swings, just anything to all my training is pushed at, you know, save max strength and now I need to create power and have endurance. So all my training seventy five percent of my training is is based in creating power out of the hips and and uh you know, being able to endure. Right. Should be fun. You know, there's gotta be some type of uh 
event leading up to this. I mean, if you don't want to actually videotape you guys beating the hell out of each other, it still might be might be funny to do something like interviews beforehand or something. Oh, yeah. Know. I would love it Have if we fun. could find somebody who wants to, like, webcast it for us. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's and just fun. blow this thing up like a huge, ridiculous fight. So, yeah, yeah. Um, you know. We'll call you it know, Clash we, of we the Titans. Make, it's like powerlifting. I mean, we can just make up our own boxing federation and make our own belt. Everybody else does it. So. Yeah, you even got that uh, marketing company. I, mean, I bet you can come up <sighs> so, with something pretty slick. Yeah, we'll make this huge, obnoxious belt. Or maybe we'll go the opposite way and we'll make, you see those giant belts on like the lightweights? We'll make this really little belt. Tiny. For yeah. the heavyweights. <laughs> It'll make you <laughs> guys look bigger. Buckle, a belt buckle the size of a quarter, you know? <laughs> so, okay. Yeah, I don't know. It'd no, hey, you got to switch gears. I mean, you know. Yep. You gotta I got to find something, something after. So, yep. And I'll be back to it. You know, I was talking to Ed Cohen because he fights. So I asked him. He went through his replacement. I was like, how did it affect your fighting? And he's like, that was, it was like the first thing he was able to get back to. He said it didn't affect it at all. He was back training it right away. So hmm. I figured it would be a good something good for me to concentrate on while I'm healing up from that. So Was that where you got the idea or was it just the local gym member you had for some? Yeah, like, it was uh, just the local gym member. I thought of it and I'd always wanted to learn the sport of boxing. You know, there's more to it than just throwing punches. So, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Okay, well, let's get to some of this listener mail and news here. Um, and let's all chime in on this one. But this says, hi, I'm a former Paralympic swimmer from Iceland. Uh, I'm now doing some cleaning up and getting back into shape. I've recently gotten into lifting, and I find it more and more fun and rewarding as the bars get heavier. I found your podcast a few weeks ago. Uh, and the weekly dose on Sunday nights motivates me a lot to master the iron during the week. I do have a question, uh, however, which the Internet has failed to answer me in any way. So I think this guy is smelling some bozos, you know, and he wants some real answers. Uh, it says, when, I come to f- when it comes to fat loss, I feel there's kind of a contradiction in a lot of the knowledge out there. If you ask someone knowledgeable how to burn fat, they'll tell you to burn more calories than you eat to create a deficit. And I get it. Uh, Eating less than you burn obviously will make you lose weight. However, there's a lot of talk about other factors in burning fat, such as whether or not to work out on an empty stomach or do high or low intensity exercise in order to mobilize your fat into the bloodstream for fuel. So my basic question is, can you lose fat without a calorie deficit? I realize the question is theoretical and creating a deficit is the way to go. But what I want to know is how much impact will my exercising have on fat loss, uh, controlling for the number of calories in and out, so to speak. Anyway, I'd love to hear some comments from you guys and keep up the good show. Best, uh, Athor. It's E-Y-T-H-O-R. Athor? Mm, Sounds very Norse. My inclination would be to say no, but the the practical side of me says you could dependent on what shape you're in because I've seen a lot of people in my gym like the scale does not change at all but their body recomposes so mm-hmm. that says to me you know that they're they're eating just enough to maintain uh and they're they're obviously losing some fat and gaining some muscle so but usually that's in people that have a lot of fat to lose so <laughs> that's where I say it's dependent like if you're already lean I don't know man that's tough to do yeah, I think the key word there that you brought up was was body composition, was recomposing, mm-hmm. because calories in, calories out, that's the beginning of physique development. It's not the end-all, be-all. In other words, you can 
eat too many calories. You can eat a lot of calories and they can end up partitioned into muscle mass or they can end up becoming body fat. You know, and conversely, you can cut a lot of calories and starve your fat tissue or starve your muscle tissue, right? So you've got mm-hmm. different body compartments. And I think that's where some of that confusion comes in. And you know what else is he's talking about, you know, he understands you've got to be in a calorie deficit. And, and that's true. But I think the confusion comes from where people, they don't really know if they're in a calorie deficit or not because their metabolism is dynamic. It'll speed up or it'll slow down. So you think you're in a calorie deficit, for example, but you're not because your thyroid levels have you know, fallen a little bit. Your basal mm-hmm. metabolic rate has fallen after a couple of weeks of dieting. And you think you're in a negative calorie balance, but you're not. So mm-hmm. the physics doesn't lie, right? I mean, these are the laws of thermodynamics. So you cannot lose body weight unless you're in a negative calorie balance. Yes. But you don't really know if you are or not unless you have access to something like a you know, metabolic heart and indirect calorimetry because mm-hmm. all of everything else is an estimate. You know what I mean? So it's true that you need a calorie surplus to grow and you need a calorie deficit to lose. But like I said, there's that partitioning thing about what tissue it's from. And it's also very difficult to actually measure these things, even on the intake side, you know, like you write down on a food log to analyze later one bagel and you eat something like I've said in weeks past, the size of a tractor tire, you know, and the food program that you mm-hmm. put in your little fitness app, it's considering it, it's like the size of a quarter. So yeah. it's really hard to know if you're in a calorie deficit or a slight calorie surplus. And mm-hmm. I think, Phil, that's why your suggestion is to pick a body weight and just eat aggressively, you know, and, mm. you know, we've all talked about the cr- crash through barriers and that sort of thing, because you that's the only way to be sure you're in a surplus or not. Now, I know he's on the other side with the deficit, but I do think stuff like fasting, if you want to directly mobilize and burn fat that he's talking about, that does, in fact, increase that. I mean, if you do eat that bagel I just mentioned, your insulin's going to respond and you're, you're not going to burn fat at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to burn the bagel uh, that you just ate, for example. So uh, I do think those things play a role in where the calories come from. Uh, and moderate intensity, non-panting stuff, again, if you want to directly oxidize fat, there's tons of studies that that's true. But again, the big question is forget about the acute directly burning fat thing. Will it lead to being more ripped over time compared to the intense stuff where you're basically rifling through carbs and glycogen. And honestly, uh, that's way hazier, you know. So mm-hmm. uh, acutely, acute information like short term, yes, fasting and moderate pace stuff is going to directly burn a fat better than the real intense stuff. But the real intense stuff, um, because of the aerobic recovery in, in between the intervals and all that kind of stuff, you actually build mitochondria. You become a better fat burner. So it's like rabbit or hare, I guess. Let's just boil this down. Mm-hmm. And you can take the rabbit approach and do high-intensity sprint, sprint, sprint. That, that, yeah, that'll make you lean over time. You can also do uh, the tortoise approach and go slowly and directly burn the fat. Uh, and I think the best time for that would be, for example, like you see a lot of bodybuilders pre-breakfast They'll do that kind of stuff because it doesn't feel like a workout. It's not intense. It's just light to moderate, you know, walk uphill thing. And then they can save their energy for the weights later. So these are all efforts to try to manipulate intensity or fasting versus fed states to get that partitioning in your favor. 
So it is confusing, you know, and like I said, it's hard to get a, a your finger on the pulse of all of it, no pun intended, because, I don't know, just measurement of metabolism, it goes up and down. You can't pretend it's just some steady thing. Yeah. All right, let me uh, offer you guys, uh, you guys can weigh in on this. Strength and Muscle Sport News. This is an article that came across my desk, and it was sort of pissing me off, to be honest. Um, it says, why do health articles so often get it wrong? Now, a lot of listeners know I'm not a big fan of certain health journalists. You know, they talk about links in research or correlational things like their cause and effect, you know. And, of course, that's ridiculous. But this particular article... Uh, it's a food science article from something called thekitchen.com, and you might be like, well, how do you get that? And you know what? I don't remember. <laughs> Somebody emailed it to me. But this um, dude is blaming the scientists, not the journalists, and this is what's bothered me. So let me set this up for you. Uh, why do health articles so often get it wrong? Uh, coffee is good for your heart. No, coffee is bad for you. Eggs are fine. No, eggs are worse than smoking. Are you exhausted by the daily assault of conflicting health inf information, blah, blah, blah? Well, apparently there's this recent um, piece in Columbia Journalism Review by David H. Freeman, and he's explaining that health stories written by, quote, respected journalists, close quote, in major publications uh, often get it wrong, but it's not a matter of the writers misinterpreting the information. It's often with the science itself. Now, this is where I'm taking offense. And yes, I'm biased, you know, because I'm more on the science side, but I've done some of the writing side. You know, Phil, you have too. Mm -hmm. um, it says science reporters, along with everyone else, tend to confuse findings from studies, but as is widely acknowledged among scientists themselves, especially within health medical science types of things, the studies have a number of problems, and then they st this guy starts throwing out words like untrustworthy, exaggerated. I, again, this is not sitting well with me. Uh, it, science is reductionist, right? You can only answer one little question at a time, one little hypothesis. And so, like in what we just talked about with this uh, listener mail, it's hard to control all these little things. So you control what you can, and you make the conclusions very tentatively, uh, and you always give suggestions for future research. You know, but this guy is—he's on the side of the journalists. I think. I don't know, Phil. What do you think? Because you've obviously written a shitload of articles. Mm -hmm. um, do you think most health journalists and it's their interpretation of the science or do you think it's the scientists getting things wrong like this guy is arguing? Well, I think it's the interpretation's usually wrong. Usually what you see in journalists is they pick and pick and choose what they want to say. So they cherry pick out of actual studies that come to a, a, a proper conclusion. Um, and sadly, you know, on the on the journalist side, it's you're always looking for you know, your side of the coin. So, I mean, and I've purposely done this to prove that can be done. I mean, you can prove almost anything out of a study that you want, if you want to. I mean, I can't remember the, some, some of the ones I've done, but, you know, I did a, a thing just proving like the, the health effects of just, just oddball stuff. <clears throat> but I mean, I could, I could probably go out and find a study, look at the ingredients in Nilla wafers and like write you a paper on how they're the best food in your, in, in the world. Um, right. Yeah. So yeah. that that's where I, what I find problematic. Generally, science is just science. It's not coming to 
It's not stating fact. It's just stating the, you know, the conclusion of a study. Okay, now we need further study to prove this, you know, type of thing. So this guy did say uh, journalists tend to get the most attention grabbing of these mm -hmm. leading to a situation of the wrongest of the wrong as far as what the public gets. But um, I don't know, unless I'm totally misinterpreting this article here about why do health articles so often get it wrong. He seems to be an apologist for these uh, science journalists. And I have actually known quite a few who frankly don't know their ass from a hole in the ground. And mm -hmm. they shouldn't be talking about things they, they don't understand. Because like I said, um, whether it's the word link, new research links. Okay, was mm -hmm. that in rats? People don't talk about the fun stuff. They just, they want to boil down conclusion, right? But the fun stuff is what was the dose? How long did this happen? What was the population? Boys, girls, young, old, animals? You know, they don't talk about all this stuff. And that's the stuff that the scientists have to be careful about or they wouldn't get the peer-reviewed science article published, mm -hmm. right? Uh, if you don't control for the right things uh, and that kind of thing. So I don't know. He's He's acting like all these, at least it sounds like to me, like all these scientific papers are just wrong, but... They're not wrong. They're answering a very reduced little question. One, they're mm -hmm. answering a little hypothesis. You know, that's all that they're doing. You know, they often say within the parameters or the, within the limitations of this research design, we conclude that. And that's why it takes lots of papers to eventually come up with something. I mean, exactly. He, and that's where I was getting at that it's problematic. And then a journalist grabs it and starts stating this one little thing as like pure fact. Kale cures cancer. No, you know, in this certain situation, in these 250 people, we saw some benefit or whatever, you know, right. under these exact parameters. And yep. journalists blow that up into this headline. Well, the yeah. very entry point of this article was coffee is good, coffee is bad, eggs are fine, eggs are worse. Those are all loaded subjective words. You're never going to see good. You're never going to see bad. You're never going to see fine. You're never going to see worse. Those are subjective words that don't appear in peer-reviewed scientific papers. Mm -hmm. They don't. So by assigning these things, I think this guy's actually proving himself wrong in a sense. Because, you know, now he's saying, are you exhausted by all this? It's like, well, you're only exhausted by this if you're trying to take a single paper uh, or even a group of papers and say good or assign a term like bad because that's not what those hypotheses are. They don't they don't posit something like coffee is good. We wanted to test this hypothesis by going no. They'll say something like coffee mobilizes free fatty acids more than water. You know, yeah. in, during moderate intensity exercise in collegiate men over twelve weeks. You know what yeah. I mean. That's what they do. They don't put those loaded value words in there. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it's just. I was listening to a uh, podcast the other day, and they put it really, really well. They said, uh, if you want to know how inaccurate reporting and journalism is, get interviewed by the newspaper or the news, mm -hmm. and then go read it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, I mean, we've probably all been interviewed at one time or another, whether it was for a high school sport or something. And uh, very, I, I don't recall ever looking at one and being like, oh, that's 100% right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're always trying to oversimplify. And, you know, it's like that old Einstein quote about simplify things as much as you can, but no further. Some things are just more complicated, you know, and yeah. the results that come out of these papers, there's all these caveats. 
That's all. That's all I'm saying. You know, when I say reductionist, I just mean there's all these little caveats. It's only in men and it's only over 12 weeks and only at this dose. You get the idea. And you would think that weightlifters would catch on to that pretty quickly, though, because we're used to things like the difference of a 10 week training program versus six or, you, you know, in men versus women and some of the differences you might see in mobility or whatever. Um, so that's like population specificity. So, you know what I mean? So none of us, none of the three of us here are going to say these things about like training, for example, like uh, good or bad, you know, well, for who, you know, over what time period? I don't know. It's just like I said, this article just sort of irked me. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to shut it now because mm. I've just I've had it with this kind of stuff. This guy's literally blaming the scientists, at least as far as I understand what he just wrote. So, and I think he's actually arguing with himself. So, oh. all right, that's all I have. Right, we'll take a short break and then we'll talk to JP some more. Hi, this is Dr. Lowry with an update on the protein book that you hear about in the ad at the end of the show. Uh, if you simply Google CRC Press and protein, uh, there's a new development. On the right side of the page, you can see ebook, and there's a purchase slash rent option. And the cool thing here is if you check that out now, because they have an agreement with Vital Book, uh, you can actually download the ebook for $69 US dollars. So that's 31% off the $99.95 uh, cover price. So that's pretty fantastic. $69, I think that's going to drop it into the affordable range for a lot of people. And you can even rent it. Uh, lower down the page, they have 180-day rentals and one-year rentals. So you can access the book in electronic format and get some of this juicy information. So thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So, uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Iron Radio listeners are a unique bunch. You value both in-the-trenches skills and the research and evidence that informs it. That's why, as a listener-supported show, we occasionally do funds drives to keep everything free and advancing. Did you know your donations at www.ironradio.org pay for web servers? They allow for small sponsorships of gifted competitors or students and even partly fund research on our specific population. That's what we're asking for during the spring and early summer funds drive. Dr. Lowry, that's me, and some students are on the verge of some key discoveries involving caffeine and explosive lifts, but we need help to get the message out. 
If you value the authenticity, expertise, and real progress Iron Radio provides, please consider a donation. Any amount is appreciated, but if you could put forward $25 or more and email robertfortney at hotmail.com about it, we'll send you some behind-the-scenes audio lab notes that were recorded during data collection. They offer true insight into what research is like on barbell athletes. Thank you for considering it. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Hi, everybody. We are back. And uh, like we said at the beginning, joining us is J.P. Price. He is a uh, an aspiring world champion heavyweight powerlifter. So... Just squatted what nine fifteen coming up to your meet. Yeah, Ooh. so we're going to talk to him about training. So what he's doing now, you know, his peaking schedule, off season, all that. So what do you got going on, JP? So you're just finishing up. Uh, you're you're nearing the end of meat prep, right? Yeah, nearing the end of meat prep. I've got two weeks from today. Um, I'll be lifting at the Fit Expo up in Chicago. It's a uh, basically a fit expo event with the uspa there it's their first year of having it so there's 45 lifters on saturday and then 45 uh, specialist lifters on sunday okay so basically uh last meet was in december and i didn't really plan to do that meet um i really wanted to do like the la fit expo or the raw unity meet but my wife was also pregnant we were gonna have a kid right around those and i couldn't i couldn't schedule any of them out far enough in advance so there's either work or home that got in the way so when it came up to that december meet i didn't know that i was having such a good prep because i was in off season and then we decided to fool around and see where the weights were at and and they were mm. <laughs> feeling pretty good so <laughs> i just pulled the trigger and did a six-week prep and uh did that meet and uh, six weeks isn't ideal but if you feel strong you need to cook while the oil's hot mm-hmm. and so i did that meet i felt like it could kind of be a tune-up for what was to come and then uh, looked out in advance, saw the Chicago Fit Expo. It's in the Midwest. It's a USPA showcase type of deal. I thought that'd be fun to do. It's on my wife's birthday. We'd take a little trip. So we planned that one out um, basically 16 weeks in advance, which I think is more ideal. Yep. And so I got with my coach, John Bird, with 1020 Life. And uh, basically I said, you know, the six-week prep worked, but, you know, let's do a full prep. So let's do six weeks of – you know, quote, off-season type training, and then uh, a 10-week, you know, full-on meat prep. So what that means is right after that meet, I went into no no wraps. I lifted knee wraps and a belt. So that's classic raw in the USPA for anybody that wasn't sure of that. So with no with uh, knee wraps and a belt, right after the meet, I take those off for a little bit for like three weeks and uh, do some base building type stuff and just get, get the blood flowing again and, and, uh, and get back into – Anybody who's ever lifted in meets, and you guys can can uh, relate to this, I'm sure, you feel so weak after a meet. Yeah, yeah. 
Have you ever gone uh, in week after a meet and you like get the blood flowing and then you put something like a little heavier on and you're like, holy crap. That's yeah. <laughs> no, that's like one of my girls. We just had the meet last weekend and she's like, she missed a, a big deadlift PR and she's like, well, I want to try that next week. So I was like, ah, well, we can give it a shot. It's probably not going to be a good thing. She went and tried, went to try it last night and on the warmups were like, nah, ain't going to happen. Yeah, it's just it's just not good so so anyway we we know that's gonna happen so now we can instead of making a mistake we can you know combat that with actually doing some real volume and getting some work in and so i did that for three weeks without wraps and then we added the wraps back in and then uh just to kind of see where things were going into that 10 weeks i squatted 900 Mm -hmm. and uh, i saw somebody else squat 903 so i did 905 instead of 900 (laughs) and that's kind of the way the way things go when you mm-hmm. when you're competitive. But so anyway, um, we've done a ten week cycle, and uh, in that ten week cycle, the way that coach has kind of patterned that out for me is ten weeks ago on week one, and with ten twenty life, the way that we pattern things, and especially when you're lifting really heavy and trying to be as strong as possible, I think this is huge. We do two weeks of hard work and then one week of deloading, which is about sixty percent work. Mm-hmm. You know, and then we do two weeks again, and then back to the deload. So we deload it every third week. Now, the way that my body reacts to that, and everybody's probably a little bit different, but the way my body reacts to that three-week split, and there's probably science to this that I don't know, and Lonnie, you can probably help me with this. Week one, I feel okay, and we start hitting bigger weight, and I get a little uncomfortable, and then week two, I feel incredibly strong. And then I beat week one, you know, the, basically it's like the same reps and sets, but I try to beat it every second week. And then the third week I deload. Now, when I come back, week one's usually really hard again. And then week two, I feel incredibly strong again. And then I deload just in time to not get beat up. So I'm sure there's more science to that, but, uh, well, you know, that's how we run our training. Everybody's so different. Like, you might think your first week back you'd be stronger because you ate and you got your glycogen back and stress hormones down a little. But I wonder if there's not some potentiating thing. You know, like there's a lot of good science that if you do a near maximal effort, and Phil and I, we've talked about this in the past, but you do a near max effort and then you go up for your max effort and it's just amazing, you know, because you potentiate your nervous system. But that only lasts a few to several minutes. But I wonder if there's not some longer-term effect, like a, I don't know. I, I've heard bodybuilders call it metabolic momentum, you know, and right. it almost sounds like you're describing like a nervous system momentum. It, it sounds like nervous system potentiation where last week's prep sort of, first week back, preps you. It potentiates you for the big second week. That's just speculation, exactly. but, you know. Well, and I also don't know how much of this is mental, too, because I <sighs> You see it time and time again. I don't know if I have if I have somebody on something like that or like week number six is their hardest week. Mentally, they're already building up for that. You know, so if you know this week, yeah, it's kind of heavy, but next week is really heavy. Just mentally, you don't come in as as hyped up as you would for next week. Mm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. yeah. so you know this is a build up week. Okay, I need to get it, but I need to I need to have something in the hole for the really hard week. So yeah, <clears throat> you know, I was feeling the pressure ramping up and. I kind of wanted to test my own thoughts on that, Lonnie and Phil. One of the things I did was a couple weeks ago, I came back for the first week, and man, I had some certain goals I wanted to hit, and I was supposed to do a uh, workup to like right below a second attempt, mm-hmm. and uh, 
what that means for me is like go balls out until it doesn't feel that good. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, that, that's the kind of stuff that makes your coaches mad. But yeah. but I'm pretty good about shutting it down when I'm not feeling it. And I don't I don't remember the last time I missed a squat in training. I was probably in high school. But uh, the uh, so we were working up, and my first attempt is going to be about 8:59 in the kilos. It works out that way to be 8:59. And I like to take about a, about a 50-pound jump between first and second because at this high a weight, like the difference between 880 and 910, I mean, it's <laughs> it's so heavy. And mm-hmm. there's so much room for air, and you don't want to risk bombing out of a meet. You know, that's the number one thing you're not going to mm-hmm. do. So I'll open up at 859, and I've hit eight, 850 for a double real easy and meat prep. I probably could have hit it for four. And – so anyway, uh, I took 865 because I'm not the kind of guy that wants to put 25s and 10s and 5s and a two and a half on. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so I put 865 on, which is like nine plates on each side with a squat bar. And I walked it out and I stumbled. And I caught myself and I finished the squat. It was fine, but it wasn't pretty. Mm-hmm. And so then I was like, well, crap, now I'm a head case for, do I, do I want to be a head case for a week or do I want to be a head case for 10 minutes? Yeah. So I put 910 on the bar yeah, and did 910 and it wasn't pretty <laughs> and I blew out my eyes, but then I was sitting there, I emailed my coach and I just said, uh, I was talking to him on messenger. I said, man, coach, I had a bad day. I stumbled with 865, but I dunked it. And then I put 910 on the bar because I just couldn't have any fear in me going into the next week's session. And it was a, it wasn't a grinder. It was still fine. Mm-hmm. But because I don't really grind squats too much, except for the one I did in the meet in December, and uh, and he said, uh, "Well, that's great. You grinded out nine ten. He said, uh, "Don't ever complain about that again, because that could be like the eighteenth best squat that's ever been performed if it happens at me." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so he kind of put things into perspective. It's like, okay, I get it, and I'm glad you got your confidence back. But uh, but anyway, so right now, being two weeks out, the last couple of weeks. Everybody likes to ramp up a little different, but personally, I come into a meet and I've taken my opener at least for a double. Yeah. On squat, bench, and deadlift, I can double my opener, no problem, any day of the week, mm-hmm. and I've done it multiple times in the meet prep. Okay, so that's how we like to open. And then my second attempt, I've, I touched on, uh, you know, one board, two board, um, to the chest. I've paused it. I've done it touch and go. Um, throughout the meat prep squat wise, I've done my second attempt three times. Now I plan to do my second attempt at 909 pounds and, uh, for the squat and then five, a 78 for the bench and then, uh, 722 in the deadlift. Um, so I've deadlifted 720 two or three times this training cycle. I've, uh, benched 575 and 585 with pauses a couple times and then I uh, hit 600 for a two to a two board. So all these lifts I have incredible confidence in, and mm-hmm. I have absolutely no doubt the way that they are performed in training that they're going to happen on the platform. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then my thirds are where we get really, really crazy. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's how we go into meat prep. So all I've got left in front of me is basically work up to my last warm up, get in there still three to four days a week just to get the blood flowing and feeling good. Uh, go to the chiropractor once or twice to get some dry needling done and some grass done on my lower back. So I'm feeling good, get some hip mobility worked in and then, uh, maybe a massage or so. And then, uh, we'll be headed to the fit expo after that. 
Right yes. on. Hey, I have a question for you guys, um, both of you actually. Phil, I know you've talked about making sure you can double or triple something for an opener, you know, like mm-hmm. in the gym. And w- I just thought about this, JP, when you said you go crazy with the third attempt. So you make your opener, you know, you're feeling good, you crush your, you know, your second. Then what do you mean by go crazy? Like, where do you ballpark that third <laughs> shoot for the sky? How do you do that? Okay, so Phil, you might have a. I, I actually, we probably feel about the same about this. I have a feeling. Um, so in a meet, you're only doing a couple lifts. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not. It's not. If you have a grinder, it's really hard work. But if you don't have a grinder, it's a pretty easy day. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really confident in my first and second attempt in the squat. But after you've lifted weights for a pretty long time, like, or even, you know, watch people lift for a long enough time. Like I was watching Jenny person's little brother lift in the meet and he dropped that 285 off his back. And I was like, yeah, it came up easy though. Put 300 on the bar because if mm-hmm. you don't, then you're going to come out here from California and not have a chance at squatting 300 pounds. Mm-hmm. And it looked good enough that I knew he could do 15 more pounds. Everybody knew that. Mm-hmm. Um, so what'll happen is when I hit that second attempt in the meet, if it's a little bit slow, then we're talking, okay, well, put a 10 on each side because anybody can go up 20 pounds. You know what I mean? And then, then we're talking about, you know, 927, 29 pounds instead of 937, which is what I really want to hit. But if it feels really good and it blows up, then I'm going to call 937. Now, I think there's a ceiling to that too because you don't want to – you don't ever want to be um, – disrespectful to your gains and mm-hmm. <laughs> jump in front mm-hmm. of them because yeah. then I think it's foolish if you get buried, yeah. you know? Um, so I, I don't ever plan to do that, but I think if you know yourself well enough and you have people around you and I'm probably going to send my second attempt squat to two or three people and then get their opinion back on what they think I should be lifting. Cause they won't be with me there at the meet, but I'm probably going to call the number on my own. Yeah. Okay. Um, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't really let other people call my number for me. Um, because I'm really, really, I, I think you guys can hear in my voice that I'm usually pretty dialed into what I think I can do mm-hmm. and I'm not going to exert myself. I want, I want people to see my third squat and then go, holy crap, you're going to do a thousand soon. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. it's going to blow up. That's what I want it to look like. And if it doesn't, then I'm upset, but yeah. that's my goal. So then in bench, if I hit 578 and my elbow is on fire, cause I've had some elbow issues with the uh, heavy benches over 550. If my bench is on fire and 578 blows up like it did a couple weeks ago, well, then 600's there, right? Mm-hmm. And you got to take a chance at it, right? You can't not. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's not good, I mean, if I'm in bad pain or if I have to, for some reason, the other day in training, I uh, I was doing pause bench, and I don't hardly ever pause in training until the last few weeks before a meet, and I've always been able to pause whatever I can touch and go. Um, so... What happened was I brought 585 down, and it was six plates on each side. So I, I don't, I'm not usually scared when I lift, but there's a little bit of fear that comes into play when you get to a certain plates or number, yeah. like the 900 squat or the, the you know, or even for anybody, the first time you hit 315 mm-hmm. on anything. Um, but so I was a little scared of the six plate thing, and I brought the weight down. My elbow hurt that day, so I was kind of like, All right, man, crap. I hope I can get this today because if I do, then I'm going to be really, really, really confident at the meet Mm -hmm. so i brought it down to my chest i paused and then i exploded off my chest but i let the bar get forward well if the bar gets forward on a 585 pound bench you're not fixing it Mm -hmm. 
So it got forward, I dropped it, and I went again in 30 seconds and crushed it. Yeah. Because I knew, I knew it wasn't one of those times where I was, where my buddies had to be like, oh man, you had the strength, come back and get it next week. F that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I'm going now because I know I had it. I'm going to prove anybody in this room that thought I didn't have it mm-hmm. <laughs> wrong. I'm going to go get it. So that's how I feel about the bench. And then the deadlift, it just kind of depends on how much the squat takes out of you. Yeah. And how long the meet is and how you feel, you know, at that point. I'm not a great deadlifter. I don't grind out weight. So I think I can be explosive with 722 on a bad day. So I'm going to take like uh, 689 and then 722, do about a 30-pound jump. And then on a great day, I'll hit 744. So anyway, I know that was probably a long answer, but that's my whole psyche going into this. Yeah, basically, I mean, like you said, we're about the same. I mean, it's it's for me, meet time is the time to go for something. You know, what is all this training for? I mean, yeah, it's great to go nine for nine, but man, I don't want to go nine for nine and leave a hundred pounds on the on the platform. You know, I want to push it to that edge. You know, my last call is going to be something that I'm still confident I can get, but I know you got to do this right. You know, you're going to make yourself work. Um, but I, I think it's stupid to call something that like for an athlete that they just don't think they got like, coach, I don't have that, you know, right. and that's, that's just stupid. If if your lifter is not hundred percent confident that, yeah, I can get this shit. If I do everything right, my training's led up to this. I got it. You know, mm-hmm. it, you got to have your head behind it, but yeah, I mean, go for something that you're a little scared of. I mean, you should be a little scared of the weight and you know, that's going to get you excited and get you coming up and right. you know, you'll have your heart behind it. So I have that's a what I base everything on. So I have a question now. So I talk about the squat 85% of the time when we talk about lifting weights because it's the best lift there is. <laughs> and it's the only one I'm great at. Um, <laughs> so when it comes to the squat, I've been thinking about this for a few weeks now. So I think 937 is going to be there on my third attempt. If it goes great, they'll give me a fourth attempt yeah. because that way it'll warrant a fourth attempt. Mm-hmm. Um it doesn't count on your total, though. Why mm-hmm. would I ever do that? Yeah. So, in my opinion, I will probably never, ever take a fourth attempt, unless, you know, the whole goal of that meet is to try to break an all-time record, which I'm a long ways off of. Um, but it doesn't help you win the meet, and it might kill your deadlift. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, I was wondering your thoughts on that. Me? Yeah. I Well, I could see in a meet, if it was a world record, yes. You know, go for it. The deadlift um, always makes sense. But the deadlift makes yeah. sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say. The deadlift, sure, go for a fourth. It's the last freaking lift of the day. You're not going right. to. You're not going to affect the rest of it. But yeah, I agree. Um, well, on the bench, the bench really. If you hurt your pec or your arm in the bench, well, you can still deadlift fine. Yeah. But the squat can ruin it all. <clears throat> yep. Yeah, the squat can ruin everything. It's like Sam Bird went to Australia and broke the all-time squat record, but then bombed out on his three benches at his opener. Mm-hmm. Well, the squat took that out of him. I mean, eight hundred yeah. upper or eight hundreds in the squat, and he's a two hundred twenty pound guy. That's not easy. Yeah, I mean, maybe if it's like this is the last meet I'm ever going to do, sure, go for it. You know, but you got more meets and more training coming up. You know, it's it's okay to save that and hit it again later, especially right. if you just walked away with PR. Yeah, so no, I agree. I mean, you're just wasting energy because you got six more lifts to go, and anybody who hasn't done a powerlifting meet just doesn't realize how much nine lifts takes out of you it's yeah, yeah it's it's just nine reps yeah it's nine really hard reps yeah <laughs> yeah you know phil so. i i can tell you just <clears throat> even having attended amateur and professional meets it's exhausting just to sit there and watch the whole thing yeah. you know i can't imagine you know you're always saying 
you can't be completely worked up the whole day long. You know, you've got to learn to pull back and cool your jets because it's like a roller coaster, you know, but if I was going to oversimplify how I like to look at a meet, and this is how I think Ben and I coach our whole team. Um, we got a team of, you know, around 20 people that compete about 12 people that are super serious about it. And, uh, when we want them to do a nice, great meet, then it's going to be openers that look like openers that you could hit for a double comfortably. That doesn't have to be a triple. That's silly. I think, but for a new lifter, I think that's good. But for, you know, somebody that's pretty experienced, a smooth double is a great opener. Second attempt, if they're having a good day or if they had a good meat prep, go for a little PR, mm-hmm. you know, or try to beat the other person in your class. Whatever. We're, we're all competing here. And then uh, if you're not having that great of a day, sorry, but you might have to wait till your third attempt for a PR, mm-hmm. you know. And then your third attempt, better not have left more than 10 pounds out there, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. If you blow up your third attempt, that's great. <laughs> mm-hmm. But – you know, that's kind of the goal is to try to milk that for all it's worth. And, you know, if we did our meat prep right, I think we can guess and, and try to know how close we can get to that little 10-pound window on the end of a lift. Mm-hmm. I don't personally like calling other people's lifts that much because uh, I don't want to be the guy that thought I knew their body better than they did. But if they have confidence issues, then, you know, I feel like I can help them a lot. But I try not to call other people's lifts for them unless, unless they really want me to. No, that's exactly what we do. I mean, it's always the plan is always easy opener, small PR. Okay, let's go for something crazy. No, depending on how that looks. I mean, I just don't. I always believe in that small PR in a second, unless somebody's had some kind of horrible training cycle. Because what the hell's the point in doing a meet if you're just going to do the same lifts again? You know, so that second it's like let's go for something. You know, even if it's five pounds. (laughs) Yeah. So you'd think you'd want to cash in on the meat magic. You know. Yeah. So. Here's uh, something I saw the other day that I shared with our team, and it's from Boris Shako, as it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, seven things to think out before the competition. And one thing to think of, too, is all the people that are really, really good at what they're doing, their answers are going to be very unsatisfying because they're so simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people don't want to hear, you know, okay, well, do that, but then do it for 15 years. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so seven things to think about. Number one, aim to complete all lifts. Number two, the total is more important than where you started. Number three, see number one, complete all lifts. Four, if you fail an attempt, repeat it. Five, know the competition. So know who you're going against. Six, first attempt can be 90%. Adjust the second and third attempts accordingly to how that felt. Seven, only two to three important competitions per year. Slightly slightly higher body weight at unimportant competitions and then repeat at a lower body weight when it is important. Pretty simple. Yeah. Yep. Get all your lifts in. Know who you're trying to beat and beat them. And when you fail a lift, don't just think that you need to go up because you want to go up. Mm-hmm. That's not where you are today. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yep. Sometimes it's good to have some basic rules just to remind you, you know. Yeah. 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 Bylaws, if you will. Yep. <clears throat> oh, good stuff. Well, we done? Yeah, I that's all I've got. I think it was a good day, JP. Um good to check we won't in. have you on the show until after the meet, but uh Yeah. Good luck. Go get nine thirty seven plus. You know, make it look easy like your other squats have, so <laughs> 
Well, the way I figure is on a, if I hit all my seconds, I'll be at 2209 or something like that. If I hit all my, if I hit a couple of my thirds, I'll be in the 2237 range. And if I hit all of them, then like 2280 would be a pie in the sky kind of day. Mm -hmm. Um, The deadlift will just have to not betray me for that to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, anyway, that's what we're looking at. I'm all, I'm all 10 shades of fired up about it. So. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Fifty Shades of JP. <laughs> oh, that sounds really hot. I can't stand up. I hey, go tell Thanks, that man. to him when you're feeding the hogs. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh. Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store one for phil one for fortress and one for myself dr lowry and they're thematic so you can go into our halls of iron store and choose based on your goal if you need something to learn or read or something nutritional you can look in my store uh, lonnie's store if you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition then take a look at phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. So we try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each Hall of Iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, The stuff you you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums. And certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.